Let's pray for this morning. Father, today we talk about your love and what your son did for us, your plan. We talk about the gospel today. And Lord, as we begin this series, may we fully embrace it and may it be real in our lives. May it be powerful. May you uh, encourage us to give it away. May your spirit work in us and give us that power as well. So thank you for today, and we just would ask that you would honor it. These things we pray in your name. Amen. There is a, a bit of a resurgence centered around a, wor- a word in our culture in the evangelical world, and it's the word gospel. Matter of fact, um, there's a, a new group of people a few years back that started gathering, and it was called the Gospel Coalition. And in one sense, there's, there's, they're concerned about, in one sense, the purity of the gospel. But it is a challenging word. And when you think of it, how the culture understands it and how maybe even within churches how we understand it, there's lots of differences. And I want to just put up a definition that I got from a source called Theopedia. It's kind of an online uh, theology encyclopedia. And look how it reads here. The word gospel originates from the meaning of the new Greek word evangelion, meaning good news. That's the technical term. This meaning was transmitted literally into Old English as God's spell, eventually becoming the word gospel. The gospel is epitomized by Jesus Christ in the following proclamation, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. See, that word gospel. But if we were to break up and look, you know, talk about it in groups, you might find there'd be some subtle differences as to how we would understand that. Matter of fact, when you think of the, the gospels, when you look at the scriptures, that word gospel, you think right away of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the gospels, as it pertains to the life and the, the narrative of what Jesus did here on this earth. But let me just put a couple more definitions up there for you to look at. And the first one's really short, and it's this. The gospel is a summary message that offers and secures salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. Nice and tight and and really short. But let me give you a little more theological one. The gospel is is that we have been saved out of no merit of our own through the substitutionary death of Christ, by which through faith we are pardoned from the wrath of God and declared righteous, made right with God. So today we begin a series around this word of the word gospel and as to how it applies to our lives and how we understand it. But, but maybe to start out and ask the question, why study it? Just, do we just assume that everybody knows it or we believe the same thing? But let me give you some pieces as to why I think it's important to study. Number one for your notes, I said this, the gospel reveals the heart and the plan of God. The gospel shows the Father's love in God for creation. He loves creation. And he wants to repair a broken relationship that was severed between man back in the garden. And God wants to restore a relationship with his creation. But when we study the gospel as well, we, we think of his greatness, his attributes, his glory. And matter of fact, I think the gospel as we look at it should push us to worship God with our heart, soul, and mind. But let me give you a second one as well why I think it's important to study. Number two, the gospel is the reason for fulfilling the Great Commission. 
when Jesus left this earth, and just before that, he tells his disciples, go and make disciples. And it's a call in our lives. If we claim to be a follower of Christ, we are supposed to respond out of love by fulfilling that mission of making disciples. It's not just for hired clergy or to bring everybody into a place and some person share the gospel. No, this is about us, all of us, taking what God has done in our lives and, and moving outward. But another one, number three, the gospel is at the core of why we gather together. Because of the gospel, we are to become one. That word up on the wall, if you've noticed those words on the wall, the issue of belonging. This belonging together, why? Because God is raising up a people to be his church, to be the bride. And we are therefore to come together to worship him because of the gospel, because of that he wants our lives to be transformed, to be made in the image of Christ. And we do this together. Matter of fact, look at Romans 12, 5. So in Christ, because of the gospel has worked in our hearts, we though many form one body and each member belongs to all the others. So this aspect of one another in our lives is critical because of the gospel. But let me give you another piece to this. Number four, we live at a time when churches and Christians are confused by the gospel. And you look, let me, let me put up on the screen 1 Corinthians 11, verse 4. Paul is rebuking, actually, these people because they've, they haven't been careful. And look how it reads. You happily put up with whatever anyone tells you, even if they preach a different Jesus than the one we preach, or a different kind of spirit than the one you received, or a different kind of gospel than the one you believed. Even back then, there were different gospels going around. And it throws confusion into Christ's bride, the church. I, I think of even in our culture, when you look at the media and how they present, quote-unquote, Christianity. For example, the issue of Mormons. There's a growing belief among the media that somehow Mormons are just another type of church or denomination. And you go, absolutely not. You understand, for them, God is not God, an infinite God. He actually has a little body, body, and there's been a progression of him growing in his godhood. But, it, but that would also apply, the Mormons believe, that would apply to individuals as well. And they don't literally believe in a, a true, they don't, they, heaven and hell for them is kind of irrelevant. Because for them, when they think of eternity, there's this progressive work. The more you obey, the more you do your good works, there's, you, you kind of step into a new glory, a higher position. You become kind of move up the ladder in terms of eternity. And so the ones that don't care, they're kind of down at the end. But, but get this, for them, when we come to it's faith alone and Christ alone, no, it's works. They work their way into eternity. And so it's a clear contradiction of the scriptures. Another one, I talked to somebody 
and between the services on this one. The issue, for example, of Jehovah's Witnesses. Some of you have had knocks on the door, or you've, you've talked to people, I have. You know, the challenge is that, for example, this Watchtower organization, I don't call them a denomination, they're really in one sense a cult, but it's they would look at us and Christian churches in general, and they would say, you're from the devil. They wouldn't believe that we really will ever uh, attain any kind of a salvation. But for them, they don't believe that Jesus is God. Matter of fact, they, they would argue that he's the archangel Michael and that he was the first created being of God. They would deny the idea of the Trinity. They deny the idea that Jesus died on a cross. They actually would say that he, was, he died on a stake. But they also deny that he rose again. And as they look to eternity for Jehovah's Witnesses, they would say 144,000, that number that's in the scriptures, they take that and go, those are the ones that are going to heaven. The rest of the people are going to have this kind of a paradise on earth. And that's what they kind of advocate. And so you got to kind of go one or the other or, or hell for them in that sense. But understand this, for salvation... For Jehovah's Witnesses, it's impossible to have salvation outside of the watchtower of that organization. And, and, and fundamentally, it, it's interesting because they're not allowed to question the leadership in any kind of doctrinal sense and to question the teaching of the church. But those are just a couple of examples. When, when you think of others that are floating out there, you think of Unitarianism, you think of uh, Scientology, you, you think of the rest of the world religions like Islam and all of those. You understand that, that in some form, people tend to look at those and go, oh, everybody's going to God. Everybody's one. And it's just whatever you choose is okay. And you go, no, it's not okay. But let me give you number five, where I, th I think we're going to be headed here in the next few weeks. Number five, we need to know the gospel so as to give it away to others. Now, understand, understand we could spend a long time on the topic of the gospel because there's so much theologically we could dig into in so many different aspects. But I want us to understand and come to that place and ask the question, if someone begins having a relationship with us, are we capable? Do we have a level of competency that we can sit down with somebody and open the scriptures and begin to talk through what the gospel means? That's where we're headed the next few weeks. As a matter of fact, let me put up a verse of why it's so important. 1 Peter 3.15. It says this, But in your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Are we prepared with words that make a difference that can speak into somebody's life? Look at 1 Peter 3, 15, or 2 Corinthians 5 again. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, the old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself and not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, 
We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. That's our identity. When you think of our identity, we, we take out our wallets and you, you look at our driver's license, I'm Ken. But on there, does it say, I am an ambassador of Christ? That I have the words that will, of life that I can give away to this world. So there's, we want to drill down, and today's the introduction, but, but I want to come back to something that I presented last week. It's kind of a, a nuance of history, and it just kind of helps in terms of why the importance for us to be ready and to give it a defense at all times. Understand this, is that through history, there are spiritual movements as to how people accepted the gospel. And matter of fact, the first movement there, I said for that bullet point there, that the gospel is accepted. Matter of fact, if you go back to the very days of the early church, you understand that there was an explosion, even though there's persecution, there was a, it was actively against the gospel, that, that there was this place where the gospel just exploded and moved from about 100 people to about 20 million people in about 250 years. People embraced it and believed it as the gospel was shared. And even think of the United States. If we go back in our history, again, it stirred somebody and they came up talking after the first service and you go back to the original founders and you see that the gospel at that point was accepted in the United States. The laws that were written were all apart focusing on God. And understood that there was a God in this world that was, in one sense, defined morality. They believed that Jesus, you know what, was God's son. That was kind of a universal, even though they may not have faith, they understood they believed in a Jesus. And they understood that, they were, that there was sin and that they were lost, even in the cultural sense in the society. And understand that in this power, the gospel is embraced. Matter of fact, at the time of Paul, look at what he wrote in 1.16. Paul says this, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, meaning everyone beyond the Jewish nation. See that the gospel has power in it to change people's hearts. And when churches stay central to the gospel, when the gospel is given away, people's lives are changed. Transformation takes place. There's real salt. There's real light. And then the purpose of life is fulfilled in Christ. And there's a commitment to the mission and the redemption that God is seeking in this world. But you think of all of a sudden it's accepted. But as time goes on in a culture, and even you see this even in families, I, I think of David. When you think of David having a whole heart toward God, and all of a sudden his son comes along, and all of a sudden another generation comes, and if you've never heard this, it was kind of Saul, or Solomon had a half heart. Kind of, yeah, okay, I'll follow God most of the time. And all of a sudden when you look at his sons, you see the generational abandonment of God. Well, this takes place in a culture as well. But how does it, what's the next terms in terms of sliding? I, for your bullet, I said it this way. The gospel then becomes, it's just assumed. It goes from accepted and it's kind of like there's this, we kind of lose our first love like I talked about last week. 
And this, there's an openness to the gospel, the marketplace, even in ideas, the gospel is okay. Uh, the reading of the Bible is okay. Uh, and understand, I go back, my mom was a teacher. You know what, 30, 40, 50, 40 years ago, she could read the Bible in a school and no one really cared. It was a good thing. It was assumed that that was okay. It was assumed that churches were good for a, a community. Religion and faith were beneficial. Teaching morality was a good thing. See, it was assumed. And God was assumed the masses, in one sense, kind of generically, believed in a God at least. But assumption of the truth, assumption of the gospel, ushered in a next step. And the bullet point, I said it this way, the gospel became confused. And here's what I believe happened. And the roots of it, of that confusion, go all the way back to Genesis 3. I remember when Eve was in the garden. And Satan comes to Eve and says this. Did God really say? Is that really from God? Did he tell you not to eat of the fruit or was it just a nice idea? You see, the confusion as Satan wants to bring confusion into a culture, does God really say? And I believe the beginning point is a questioning of the Scriptures as to their authority, their validity. And understand that questioning did not start 10, 15 years ago. The questioning began probably in the 18th century. And theologians in Germany and Europe that were abandoning the authority of the Scripture, that was more of the roots of it. But, but, but get this, uh, that all of a sudden there was a reaction. Uh, and there's a phrase throw at you. Maybe you've heard it, maybe you haven't. But have you ever heard the phrase, essentials of the faith, that which is essential? Well, it's a phrase that people use and churches use, pastors use, and it's this. What are the things, the doctrines that we believe that are non-negotiable? So when you talk about an evangelical free church, you recognize there's a, we have a doctrinal statement. And these things are not negotiable. They're the essentials of what we believe. And if you look at our statement, you're going to see that almost all of them are pointing toward the gospel of what God has done. But when liberal theology came in, when culture began to, to change, when, frankly, what happened is, uh, when it was accepted, the scriptures defined the culture. And then there was a switch that came along and said, let's let the culture, then we'll interpret the scriptures. So that's what twist, that, that twist came about. And all of a sudden, the essentials came up and saying, why? Because it was a response to liberal theology. And there was a tax on and going, these people aren't preaching a right gospel. So that's where the essentials of the faith, that phrase even came from. But let me give you some really relevant illustrations and a couple quotes, because I think there's an assumption with so many people that when people talk about the gospel, when they talk about faith, we think that we're they're talking about the same thing. And you understand, maybe not at all. That's the challenge. And I want to put up a quote from a pastor. It was from its very large mainline denomination. He's a pastor in Chicago, and look what he writes here. 
the myths that have grown themselves around the first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke, do you notice the phrase already, the myths? That have created a, a narrative that theologically resonates, but realistically falls flat. Angels, traveling magi, virgin births, it's all hard to swallow as reality, even for the faithful. It's a story for children's books. Do you understand what he's saying? And he goes on to say, and I'd advocate that you need not swallow it all to be a Christian. In fact, it's, it sounds like so much myth, mostly because it was written to evoke that kind of thought in the reader and the kind of hope in the reader's heart. You too were supposed to see that something unusual, epic, or mythical proportions is taking place in the person of Jesus. He's saying this, is that the scriptures really don't matter. God just works in some mystical way. Let me give you one more quote, again, different denomination. And this was on their, actually on their website for a while. It's been since taken down a few years back. He wrote this, If Jesus is the Lord and Savior, he is the universal Lord and Savior. Not merely my personal Lord and Savior, because Jesus is the unique and universal Savior, there is a large hope for salvation, not only for me and for others with the proper credentials of believing and belonging to the church, but for all people whenever or wherever they might have lived, and no matter how religious or irreligious they may have proved to be to themselves. It's clearly that God's announced will that all people shall be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Now what he's saying this, he's saying that everyone will be saved. And he actually twisted the scriptures there in 1 Timothy because God didn't announce that all people, he desires all people. He left out a very important word. So you understand the challenge as the gospel becomes confused. That when you have conversations with your family, with friends, with people at work, when you say, do you believe the gospel? What, which gospel? See, that's the challenge, I think, for us. But maybe the, that last point, the last bullet there. After that, the gospel becomes lost and oftentimes rejected by the culture. I was listening to a conference this week. They had put it online. Um, it was held previously, and they put it for a resource that we can we can listen to it. And the author was pointing to this issue of how the culture impacts the understanding of the of the gospel. And he quoted a speaker or and a philosopher, uh, Frederick Nietzsche. And it was a philosopher at the end of the 19th century. He was an unbeliever, but Nietzsche argued that the natural development of a culture, the way it looks at spiritual things, is that oftentimes it looks out at first, but then it begins to curve back and becomes focused inward. And it becomes absorbed with the self. And I'll just read a quote, I don't have it. It says, it's where individual desires rule over the objective truth world. Do you catch that? where the desires of the self all of a sudden trump that which is true or rational. And, and he understood that. For example, in the abortion debate, it's my body. No one can tell me what to do. That's the individual. Even if it means killing a baby. And this pagan philosopher, let me put a quote on the screen. Look at what he said. 
Didn't know, doesn't know God, but he said this, without a notion of transcendence, that there's something bigger than just ourself. He's referring to some kind of God out there. But the, without a notion of transcendence, the only two values that will remain, as speaking within a culture, will be health and happiness. And you go, is that not today? Health and happiness is the name of the game. An unbeliever with a prophetic voice. See, but the question then, what is our response to a culture that is shifting deeply, that is rejecting the gospel? And you understand that there's theological pieces that are taking place within as the culture begins to reject the gospel and who Jesus is and redefine Jesus. And I want to show you one from a scripture, Romans chapter 1. This is an interesting text for me because I, this is one of the, not this particular passage, but there was, I was going through my first sermon ever at a church. And I was working through some stuff on Romans 1 and trying to share the gospel, and I got this really nasty letter saying, how dare you talk about sin like that? Um, so don't send me any nasty letters after today, okay? But Romans 1.21, this is a new living just because it reads very smooth here. Yes, they knew God. This is after they reject the gospel. But they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claimed to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. And as a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth of God for a lie. So they worshiped and served the things of God created instead of the creator himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. That is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even women, women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men, and as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty that they deserved. When the gospel is lost, they, people turn their backs on God, and they serve the creature rather than the creator. That's a shift as a culture begins to even change. But I don't know if you caught one other thing. I underline that because there's also a response by God that we don't want to kind of, we got to close our ears and go, la, la, and I'm not sure that we like this. But look at the response, that God abandoned them. It repeats it twice. Now, it's actually stronger if you go to a different version. It's this, God gave them over. He held any kind of protection and he let them go to go down this path of depravity. And he kind of took his hands off and the culture keeps destroying itself. See, but the question, as that is unfolding with us, even here in the United States, what is our response to be? Do you see our dilemma? What is our response? Well, let me give you four of them. 
couple of them came from listening to this conference last week. But the first one, I think there's, there's, there's some that hold on to this, this one, is take back the culture for Christ. Let's, let's go back to the Christian roots and, and go back to where Christian morality was kind of the, the top of the pyramid. And now, should we just give in to the morality? The answer is no. But I'll say this, it's not a political solution. It's a spiritual solution to the issue. And the reality is, if we think we're going to take back the culture, I just think we're not reading Scripture. Let me point one out to you, 2 Timothy 3.3. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, not loving, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And you go, is that kind of where we're at in our society? And are, are we in a put all our energy in trying to claim back the challenge is God has to change their hearts before the behavior is going to change. But there's another response. It's this. Move toward isolation. Run for the hills. Get off the grid. Look at how bad the culture's going. And then what we do is we whine and we complain and we kind of become a victim and we complain to other Christians and, oh, how terrible it is today. Look at the world that we live in. Oh, for the good old days. Is that where we're going? And so what we do is we pull back, we isolate ourselves from the world. But what happens is how do you then share the gospel? How can the gospel make a difference? If, if we just huddle up, we stay in our Bible studies, and we just kind of moan, and we go, oh, oh, the, the world is really getting ugly. But this pulling away, I think, started a long time ago. I think it started when it was back, when I was in my, actually, probably growing up years. I, I think back to, in Vancouver, I was in some basketball leagues, and one of them was a church league. You know, it was back then that I actually could get my feet off the ground and, and I could actually jump a little bit. But I remember this basketball league because there was a rule in it. If you didn't go to church, you couldn't play basketball with the, with the league. Now think of the logic of that. What's the purpose of that? To keep Christ, non-Christians out? Do you understand the tension of that? You go, that just doesn't make sense. You want people to expose us to the gospel. And even on a basketball court. We were afraid that somehow, that because of their swearing and their stuff, somehow there's going to taint us. Go, no. How do you present the gospel? Do you see the challenge for us is, what do we do? Are we just going to retreat as a church, as a culture, as a Christian communities? Are we just going to pull back and say, we're going to huddle up and go, okay, we're not going to do anything. Third one, though, here's another response. And what churches, some churches have moved for, they embrace the culture in a negative way. And what they do is, again, is they want to define, they take the truth and they go, okay, you know what, culture comes first, then we'll reinterpret the Bible to make sure it fits us. 
And you know what? We really don't want to get in trouble. So what we're going to do is just going to be kind of silent. We're going to sit on the sidelines and we really don't want to be ridiculed or mocked or defamed. And that's a challenge if you're a student even in here today. Someone tells you that, okay, it's okay that it's normal to be homosexual. But I, but I get that. Do you understand the fallacy of the logic in that? That it's okay to go have an abortion because it's our right? See, see, the logic just breaks down in terms of truth because it actually fundamentally goes back again to the Garden of Eden. That what does it mean to be like God? Be like, to be like God says this, I have the right to define what is morally good and morally evil. So the culture is saying, anybody has the right to define what's good, what's bad. Unless you disagree with me, of course. That's the other side of it. But, but the tension there for us is, God is the one who defines what is good and what is evil. Truth is prescriptive. It comes from him to us. So what he says, killing a baby is, is killing, it's murder. It's murder. But what we got to figure out is not just saying it's murder. We've got to challenge people to go, Where's your logic? Where are you going? How do you, who determines, who, who determines the right of making up the rules? But there is a fourth response that I think we need to go, and this is where we're going to spend our time the next few weeks. Number four, we need to be, be faithfully giving words of hope. Live lives that shine brightly and love people that need to be loved. See, how do we live in such a way where the gospel, we can just take it out of our pocket whenever we need to, figuratively speaking, and give it away to people. Where we can sit down with somebody, take the time, not just proclamation from a pulpit like this, where we sit down over a lunch and say, let me just take some scriptures out and let me show you what the gospel is. And then we trust God that there's power in that, as Paul assumed that there was power within the gospel. You see, it's not about creating a new program at church. It's not about inviting friends to church campaign or or to have some event where some professional guy speaks the gospel. That's not the point. That's not the goal. It starts with us individually. And are we willing to spend time with people who may be confused about the gospel? Are you willing to spend time with people who may have never heard it? And that's a growing trend. More and more people, and especially children and youth, they haven't heard it. They have no idea who Jesus really is and what he did. So these next few weeks, we want to figure out how can we present it, use the scriptures, and give it away to people. I'm going to go through a series of verses in the next number of weeks. And where they come from is these, I've used these for years and years and years. And it was ones that we had to know back when Deanna and I first got involved in youth ministry. And we were going to a water ski camp. And there was about 30 verses that we were walking through in preparation because we wanted kids to be able to hear the gospel. And we were challenging the high school kids to learn these about, it's about 30 verses or so, and be able to share the gospel at that camp with their friends one-on-one. 
at that camp, there was probably six, seven, eight, nine kids who gave their lives to Christ. And all of it was done by teenagers sharing the words of the gospel. But we need to be prepared. First Peter, let me look at that verse again, 3.15. Put in your hearts to honor Christ, the Lord is holy, always being prepared. So in one sense, where we're headed, and this is the introduction week, it's how are we prepared? prepared to share the words of life. And for some of you, you know what, this is going to be review and, and, and encourage you to just worship God and, and just be reminded again of what he's done. But for some, other of, for some of us, we've never really learned how to speak the words of life to people. And, and let me throw that main point in here before I get, if you, for filling in your notes. And I would say it this way for the next three weeks, we must personally embrace the gospel. And we must share the gospel with those that God has given us to love. So when somebody opens the door of their life to us, we can step in with boldness, with the power of the Holy Spirit, and that God uses those words to penetrate their hearts. Matter of fact, I'm going to close with this. There's an insert in there in the bulletin. I think it's on the, the back of the announcements for the Help Wanted. Ten ways to be missional. I've been doing this, a series, put a number of these in here. Another writer that just walked through and go, okay, what can we do to start to impact our culture with the gospel? I'd encourage you to read those and just take them and ponder them. There's some that maybe you could do here as well. So that's where we're going, folks. Next few weeks, we're going to walk through what's the gospel, what are the elements, the doctrinal elements, and how can we share it effectively with people. But, but today, we also, I'm going to ask the elders to come on up. There's a place where, you know what, we want to celebrate the gospel today. And it's what God has done in our lives. And it's, this table reminds us that Jesus entered this world, that God became man, and he hung on the cross, he died for us, and he took away the penalty of our sins of all of those that embrace him.